Hey, welcome to the Cherry Hills podcast. This fall, we are rejoining and concluding our series in the Gospel of Mark, where we're learning the way of Jesus together. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, friends. Hey, we're in a series in Mark's Gospel towards the end of Mark's narrative account of the life of Jesus. And where we left off last week, Jesus has just been arrested, uh, betrayed, and deserted. So Fritz is going to give our reading on the text this morning. And at the conclusion of his reading, we'll declare together, thanks be to God. A reading from Mark chapter 14. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days will build another not made with hands. Yet even their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? He asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You were with, with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, This fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, the rooster crowed a second time. Then Peter remembered the word that Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is the word of the Lord. Speak to God. In Mark's story this morning, there are two scenes 
The first scene centers on Jesus, and the second scene centers on Peter. But these two scenes are happening simultaneously in real time. Uh, If you were to read this story in a comic book, you might see something like scene one over here on this page, scene two over here on this page, and there'd be a text box in the middle that says, meanwhile, dot, dot, dot. So these are happening at the same time. And it's important that we understand that. Because to see these two scenes in connection with one another, to read them in parallel, juxtaposed, placed side by side, helps us draw out what Mark wants us to see in the narrative. Jesus is in the inner rooms of the home of the high priest on trial before the Sanhedrin. Peter is just outside. Uh, If you could picture kind of maybe a mansion with some colonnades and and, uh, portico, something like this. Peter is sort of hanging out on the front porch of the home, so to speak. They're within close proximity to one another. And both Jesus and Peter are being examined and accused. Both of these men are on trial. There's two trials that are happening in this story when we read these scenes in connection with one another. One of the men on trial makes no defense. The other man on a trial denies with curses Every accusation against him. If you're following in your notes, the faithfulness of two men is tested. And the results differ dramatically. Now, you and I face the testing of our faith in small ways on a daily basis. Small, small ways, here and there. And then sometimes in our lives in profound ways, in periodic moments, big moments, we face the testing of our faith. And I'm, I always find it amazing. Some people will say, you know, I want to live my life with no regrets. And man, I do too. But I blew it when I was like six years old and I haven't been able to get it back since, you know? All of us know what it's like to live with failure in the rear view mirror. And so part of what I want us to consider this morning in light of the juxtaposition of these two scenes is how do we reckon with Failure. How do we face the fact that we have failed our tests, messed up at our moments of trial? Each of us is acquainted with the reality of our coming up short in life. How do we reckon with that? For some of us, you know what that's like because just this morning you lost your temper on the way here. Others of us, you're here this morning and you still have in mind and you're still reaping the consequences of that bad decision you made 10, 15 years ago. And it haunts you. It's always looking over your shoulder. You're living in the aftermath of that, whatever that is. So each of us knows what it looks like to walk through failure. And at the same time, we want to be part of what's good in the world. We want to be part of the solution to the problems of the world. And we can be. We can genuinely bring the world healing. But only insofar as we reckon with the way in which we are part of the world's problem. Only insofar as you reckon with our own failures and then look to a hope outside of ourselves. So to consider some of these things, let's take a look at the first scene this morning. Jesus' trial before the Jewish authorities. If you'd like to follow along in a Bible, I'd encourage you to do that. It's going to be on page 827 if you're using one of the black Bibles under the chairs. Page 827. We'll be in Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 53. They took Jesus to the high priest 
and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Now, Jesus, just to pause here, he's on trial before this group of people known as the Sanhedrin. This is a religious and a political council. It's a group of the most powerful leaders uh, in Jerusalem at the time, leaders of the Jewish people, and it's chaired by, led by the high priest, whom we know from other gospels and from the historian Josephus, is Caiaphas this year. Caiaphas is the high priest. It's his house that this scene is unfolding at. And the express purpose of this gathering is to find the evidence necessary to hand Jesus over to the Romans to be executed. The outcome that they're hoping for is already predetermined. What they need to get clear on is the pretext, right? The verdict is in place. They're looking for the evidence to confirm what they want to see take place. It's a time where they can turn rumor and animosity that's already been swirling around Jesus' ministry into formal punitive charges. They can actually take something to the court with this. So if you're following your notes, the question for the Sanhedrin is not if Jesus should be convicted. It's how he should be convicted. How, not if. Now they still go through a kind of due process. Uh, you can see in here there's witnesses that are brought in. There's a kind of uh, you know, jury of his peers, so to speak. That's the Sanhedrin. They're also the, the judges in this instance. And there's a cross-examination that takes place of the witnesses. That's why we know they, they can't seem to agree because apparently somebody is, is cross-examining these witnesses and poking holes in the stories, the testimony. And Jesus is given an opportunity to give himself a defense, to, to speak on his own behalf. So there, there is kind of the external trappings of justice and of due process in this trial that Jesus is facing before the Sanhedrin. But I think it's purely external. I think it's kind of rotten at the core, right? Mind you, it's, this is the dead of night when this is happening, okay? It's nighttime. Peter's outside, he's warming himself by the fire because the sun has set. So it's nighttime around Caiaphas' house and all of this is happening in Mark's narrative. And Mark's narrative earlier had said, this is Mark 14, verse 1 and 2. Now the Passover and the festival unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. It is politically expedient that this whole thing not cause chaos. They don't want that, because chaos means the hammer of Rome. Chaos is bad news for everybody. This is a tense, difficult, politically charged situation, right? The high priest, Caiaphas, he's been appointed by Rome, and he serves only in so much as he can please both the Jews and Rome. So so he's got some some people to keep happy in this situation. Uh, Temple disturbances lead to violence. We know this again from Josephus talks about this, that when there's riots and unrest around the Temple Mount and around Jerusalem, which by the way, tends to happen at big pilgrimage festivals like the one happening right now in our story, the Romans squash that like a bug, right? They don't have anything to do. They don't like that stuff, right? So this is a, this is a chart. This whole situation is a powder keg. 
It's a difficult situation. Uh, historians will estimate that during these pilgrimage festivals, like the Festival of Unleavened Bread that they're celebrating, the population of Jerusalem, because of the influx of, of pilgrims, will swell to three to five times its normal population. So the city's just buzzing, right? And Jesus is a, is a popular prophetic leader amongst many of the masses, although he certainly has his enemies in high places. And so this is a delicate situation. It requires a little finesse from the Jewish leaders who want him gone. So they genuinely believe uh, that he is a blasphemous person or a false prophet and a pretend Messiah and a would-be They genuinely believe these things. Uh, the Jewish leaders aren't insincere in what they think is wrong with Jesus. But they go through a little bit of a um, phony process because the people aren't always on their side. And so they need something to happen to Jesus that won't cause a stir, that won't upset the Romans and the mass of the people who do love Jesus and believe in Jesus, or at least believe something about Jesus. So that's the pretext. That's why all of this is happening. That's why Judas is necessary. That's why they arrest Jesus outside the Temple Mount. That's why this trial happens at night. There is some uh, real politics happening here. It's not just um, a religious debate that's unfolding at Caiaphas's house. There is something uh, greater at stake and a little more complex. It's like a little bit of a, um, a legal drama, a political thriller, if you will, that's happening in this scene. And here's why it's, it's helpful for us to understand that. It gives us a little bit of insight into what might be going through Peter and the rest of the disciples' minds. As Peter follows Jesus to Caiaphas's house, What's, what's on his brain? This helps us grasp that a little bit better. If you're following your notes, Jesus' trial presents his followers with a dangerous and unpredictable situation. This is volatile. This is hostile. And Peter uh, has no longer got any script. I mean, we're, we're in the deep end. We are off the edges of the map. If you're Peter... I mean, your head is spinning. What has just taken place? This, we deviated from the script here in a huge way. And Peter doesn't know how to make sense of this highly unpredictable, volatile situation. There is a great risk to him and to the rest of the 12, to Jesus' followers. This is why everybody deserts him. We'll get to Peter in a moment. Let's finish looking at Jesus' trial. This is the situation. It's dangerous. It's fraught, right? Verse 56. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands. In three days, we'll build another not made with hands. Yet even their testimony did not agree. So uh, people are brought in who bear false witness against Jesus. We don't know the full details, the full scope of what they say, but one of the charges that they seem to make against him, the thing that gets maybe ultimately him killed, one of the things at least, is that they say, you've come and to destroy the temple. You're going to drop this thing into the dust, and then you claim something ridiculous that you're going to raise it up again in three days. And this is uh, sort of true for what Jesus has said. Jesus hasn't claimed that he himself is going to bring the temple to ashes. 
But he has referred to the destruction of the temple in the future. He has just cleaned out the temple, right? Flipping over tables and expelling people from the court. This kind of prophetic action in the temple. And he has talked about his own body. John's gospel tells us that his own body is the temple, right? In John 2, 19, Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. So Jesus has echoed something like what they're talking about, but there is, I mean, the wires are crossed, you can tell here. And so these people, they think that Jesus is out to destroy the temple, that he is opposed to the temple and by extension, the priests who serve in the temple, which are his jury and judges. So this is a serious claim that's being made against him. And Jesus has opportunity to clear all this up. No, 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 that's not what I meant. That's not what I meant. But he doesn't, he doesn't do that. So again, nobody seems to be able to agree on who Jesus is and what he's up to. So the charge doesn't stick. And now it's Caiaphas' turn. He takes over. In verse 60, and the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? He asked, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. And then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. Now this is thick with irony. On the one hand, it's ironic because Jesus has prophesied already this very moment. They are, as they accuse him of being a false prophet, fulfilling his prophecy that he would be handed over to the authorities and sentenced to death. So that's ironic. And then secondly, Jesus has just given them a new prophecy. He's just appropriated the words of Daniel chapter seven, where Jesus has claimed that he is the son of man. And he says to them, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. He's just given them a new prophecy. And it's an audacious one. I mean, it's a bold one. It's a challenge. If you're following in your notes, here's what Jesus is essentially saying. Today, you sit in judgment over me. The day will come when I will sit in judgment over you. Today, I am subjected to your authority. Someday, you will be subjected to my authority. His prophetic words here is saying, there will be a great reversal of what is happening in this moment. You will see me, the son of man, coming in power and authority to reign as judge over you. That's, those are fighting words, right? They don't, they don't like this very much. It's one of the most audacious things that Jesus ever says to his audience. And this is what it all comes down to, right? All that Jesus has said up to this point in his whole ministry and all that he's done, everything that he has communicated, if, if he's a liar, if he's a pretender, if you don't believe that he's the Messiah, the son of the blessed one, 
then he really is worthy of condemnation. Because he said some very lofty things. He's made some serious claims. He's done some very disruptive things to the world as people know it, to their expectations, to their values. I mean, what kind of nut job? What kind of narcissist? What kind of schemer says the sort of things that Jesus says? It is genuinely blasphemous unless it is true. Unless it's true. As C.S. Lewis has famously said, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, that's some great British humor, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. We must make our choice. So if you are here this morning and you profess that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the son of God, then we must consider what claims that makes on our own lives. If that's true, what demands does this have on the way that I live? I think, you know, the, the, one of the worst things about American uh, evangelical Christianity, the thing that I think would have Jesus just flipping over chairs and pews in our sanctuaries is the mass of us and I'm included at times in this as well, the mass of us who claim that what Jesus said was true and then live like it doesn't matter. Except, of course, when it comes to protest something politically that we don't like or to show up for a holiday service or something, right? But that's not what Jesus has, the claims that he's make, that he makes about himself. That lays claim to us, Right? More than just those ways, more than just those little things. If you're following in your notes, the one who knew his own fate looked death in the face and said, I am, demands my fidelity. If Jesus is who he has claimed, the son of the blessed one, then we have only one fitting response which is to fall down and worship and obey and surrender and go the distance with him, even in to death. Because on the other side of death is life. That's what Jesus has proclaimed about himself. That's what he has called us into. He demands our fidelity. It's a remarkable thing. But it's not just, though, the statement that Jesus makes at his trial that is remarkable in this story. It's not just the statement. It's the silence as well. The silence is remarkable. Notice this with me. In the whole scene that unfolds with Jesus before the Sanhedrin, things are just happening to him, left and right, being said about him. He's receiving all the actions. Just go and count the number of verbs where Jesus is the recipient of the action of that verb. Okay, if you're a grammar nerd, you can go do that, right? He's accused. 
He's mocked, he's spit on, he's blindfolded, he's beaten, he's questioned. All of these things happen to Jesus. He's, he's depicted as passive through the whole scene. And when he's given the chance to defend himself, verse 61, Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. And when he finally does speak, it's not in his own interest. It's not in his own defense. It's not on his own behalf. You know what's fascinating about this? Throughout Mark's gospel, Jesus is questioned by lots of different people, lots of different occasions. He's questioned by the 12. He's questioned by people in need. He's questioned by religious authorities. He's questioned by the Roman authorities. Jesus is even questioned by demons. And on every occasion in Mark's gospel, Jesus always responds to the question, except here. This is the only time in Mark's entire narrative about Jesus where Jesus is silent in the face of a question and will not give an answer. If you're you're like me, maybe at times you wrestle with the silence of God in the face of injustice and evil and suffering. Surely this is one of these times where God seems silent in the face of a great injustice. Uh, in his book, Night, the Jewish writer, Elie Wiesel, he recounts his own experience, his personal experience, living through the Holocaust and going through concentration camps. And he describes in this book not only his experience in these camps, but the loss of his faith, the loss of his belief in God, during his time in the concentration camps. It's a, I mean, just moving, gripping, an horrific narrative that he tells. At one point in time, he tells the story of a young Dutch boy who was taken by the Gestapo from his cabin in the camp and was sentenced to death. And he was stood up on a chair at some gallows next to two other older men. And Elie Wiesel recounts that just before the moment when the chair is kicked, the two men beside him, they shout out for everybody to hear, long live liberty. And then the young Dutch boy, and I quote here from Wiesel's book, he he does this, but the boy was silent. Where is merciful God? Where is he? Someone behind me was asking. Giselle goes on to recount the prolonged suffering of this boy, and it's not details that I'll get into. It's frankly quite unspeakable. But toward the end, with this whole horrific scene, Giselle recounts, Behind me I heard the same man asking, For God's sake, where is God? And from within me I heard a voice answer, Where he is, this is where, hanging here, from this gallows. At the time, the silence of God in the face of great evil and suffering and injustice looked to a young Elie Wiesel like the death of God. That's what this scene, that's what this moment is for him. His belief in God died along with that child that day. But years later, Elie Wiesel received the Nobel Peace Prize decades after this event. And in his speech, he spoke to the fact that his belief in God was not 
after all, dead. In this acceptance speech, he says, I have faith, faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There is a divine silence in the world that we do not understand. Just as there is a divine silence at Jesus' trial, it is hard to understand. Peter doesn't understand it. Oh, we know from Peter's sword-swinging antics in Gethsemane what he would do. He'd say, Jesus, speak up. Jesus, defend yourself. Do something. Say something. But somehow, though Peter and we do not yet see it, the silence of God will turn out for our good. If you're following in your notes, Jesus is silent for our sake. He is silent for our sake. Through silence, through the resolve not to speak and act in his own interest, through a radical surrender to the will of God, Jesus proves faithful in his test. Though condemned by man, he is approved by God as the faithful one. And he will soon be vindicated before the eyes of his accusers, just as he promised them. When he is raised up on the third day and will later in the future come with the clouds of heaven. But in contrast to Jesus' faithfulness, Peter at his test, his trial, breaks faith. Meanwhile, in the courtyard of the high priest, Peter is accosted by a servant girl. Verse 67. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. Now, Peter is literally a stone's throw from Jesus. And after this first denial of Jesus, that Nazarene, he moves away from the courtyard out into the entryway. He literally distances himself from Jesus, right? Like, get me away from this guy. I don't want anything to do with him. He's taken a risk to be here, to follow Jesus into this area. Think about the fact that that servant girl of the high priest, she likely knew the servant, Malchus, whom Peter had attacked with a sword in the garden. He's also a servant of the high priest. They serve in the same household for the same man. So there's, there's a risk in following Jesus here for Peter. But I think this risk that he's taking has more to do with curiosity than with courage. If you're following your notes, Peter wants to know Jesus' fate. He certainly doesn't want to share in it. Peter had been courageous in the garden in the sense of genuinely willing to go to war for Jesus, right? I mean, he will come to blows for Jesus. He would sincerely risk his own life for Christ's victory. But what Peter doesn't understand is that Jesus intends to lose. And it, it throws out everything that Peter understands about who this person, everything he thought he knew is gone out the window. And so in the court of the high priest, Peter goes from the man willing to kill for Jesus to the man who will deny any association at all with him. A lot can change in one night. And it has for Peter. Verse 69, when the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. 
After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them. You're a Galilean. And he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. So Peter, in an effort to be convincing, he's making oaths. And this is a common practice, by the way, in the first century. You make an oath and you say, okay, if, I, if I'm lying, then may I be accursed. May X, Y, and Z bad thing happen to me. And what Peter's doing is he's making the oath, knowing that he's lying, willing to receive the curses he's calling down upon himself. This is a severe break with Jesus. It's radical. And it's severe enough to be persuasive to those around him because they don't take him in with Jesus. In verse 72, immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and he wept. Morning is coming. And Jesus' prophecy about Peter has been brought to light. His infidelity, in light of Jesus' fidelity, is visible now for him and us to see. And so he's crushed. And this is the final narrative with Peter in Mark's gospel. But it's not the last word about Peter. In John's gospel, we get this beautiful restoration story about how Jesus pursues Peter and reinstates him. And do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? You know? In Mark's gospel, we don't get all that, but we do get this, this one little hint that I love because Mark is, is subtle. He's a subtle writer. When the women find Jesus' tomb empty after his crucifixion, when he's raised from the dead, they encounter the angel who says to them, Mark 16, 7, but go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. It's that little phrase, and Peter. It signals that Jesus just doesn't want the 10 who didn't deny him. He wants Peter to. He says, go tell my disciples, and you tell Peter. He needs to know about this. He needs another moment with me, right? If you're following in your notes, Jesus' fidelity to Peter overcomes Peter's infidelity to Jesus. And this, friends, is the gospel. This is the heart of the gospel. We've all been tried and found wanting. We're all living and reckoning with our failure. Peter thought he and Jesus were going to change the world. And they would. But it turns out that Peter needed Jesus to change him still. And you and I still need Jesus to change us so that we can participate with him in all that he has in store for us to go out and to transform the world that we ourselves have been transformed by Jesus. We need Jesus to give us grace for our failure and set us out again on the new path that he has for us. Can I tell you, in my own life, when I am impatient with my wife, as happens a time or two, I have to return to Jesus. And I have to trust that his patience to me overcomes my impatience. When I am overly critical of other, others, and I kind of monologue in my head and anger about them. Do you do this? 
I have to go and return to Jesus. And I have to trust that his kindness and his goodness overcomes my critical spirit, my cynical attitude, my self-righteous anger. When I am overindulgent in pleasure and comfort, I live without limits, I have to return to Jesus. I have to trust that his selflessness overcomes my selfishness. Each of us is returning to Jesus again and again in our lives, despite our failures, knowing that he receives us and overcomes our weakness. So I want to invite us for a moment to consider the immensity of the grace of God in our own lives. Some of you I recognize are not followers of Jesus, but you're here and I'm grateful that you're here. And I hope this would be an opportunity for you, as we all do, to consider the beauty of Jesus. Our best efforts will not save the world. As much as we need our best efforts, beauty will save the world. And so we get an opportunity to receive the gift of communion as we do each week. And it's a tangible reminder to us of Christ's beauty, saving us and saving the world. It's a reminder of God's victory and Christ's faithfulness toward us. So if you're a follower of Jesus, even if you're not a member of this particular church, this body of believers, we invite you to partake in this with us. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I ask that you just consider what this means and continue to reflect on the beauty of the gospel. But we're gonna take a moment here just to practice confession before we come to the table. And if you're like me, at times you, you think to yourself, confession, oh, who needs it? I mean, God already knows. You know, is this just about some kind of psychological penance? I gotta come here and feel guilty and feel shame for a little bit. That's what God wants is for me to feel shame. That's the furthest thing from the truth though, right? Here's the truth. Confession is a gift that God gives us. It's not about entering into shame. It's about emerging out of shame. If concealment is how we practice shame, confession is how we practice grace. So that's the gift that we're given as we confess our sins before God and receive with joy the love and the grace that he has toward us. So I'll guide us through a couple of questions. We just bow your head, pray with me. Let's examine ourselves before we receive communion together. And just the quiet of your own space with the Lord. Just consider where in my own life have I experienced failure? Where do I need to reckon with my own weaknesses and inadequacies? Is there somebody that I need to be reconciled with that I need to go to and apologize and not make excuses and not cover up and not diminish and just just say it how it is? I was wrong. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Do we need to be reconciled to somebody? Are we living in such a way that we don't have good boundaries and accountability in our life and so we're just wreaking havoc 
chaos of the decisions that we're making, held captive to things. You need to establish better limits in your life so that you can live with discipline and restraint and holiness before God. We may need help to go and to do that. We can get that help talking to people. But it begins here, acknowledging before God the moment of honesty. Take just one more minute in silence before God. we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us to cleanse us he has proved faithful in the past at his own trial and he will always be faithful overcoming our own faithlessness Lord Jesus we receive from you the love and the grace that you have for us Thank you, God. Thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's teaching. If you'd like more info on our church, you can visit our website or find us on Facebook.